1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Uh, actually, 7 through 12. We'll talk about verse 12 at the end, but we'll read verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, as we've gone through this first letter from John, we've noticed that he is consistently urging his readers to answer basically three questions about themselves. He's giving them three tests in order to show that they are in Christ. There is the the doctrinal test, right? What do you really believe about Jesus? So, for example, up in chapter 4, verse 2, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. He gives a behavioral test. He's asking, how how is faith in Jesus changed you in regard to sin. And so in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And he gives the community test, right? Do you love those who Jesus loves? So in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So in, in that sense, there's a repetition here as he, he circles back around to one of these questions, this community test, the, the test of love. He comes back to it again. and He's writing and saying, essentially, beloved, let's love one another because love is of God. God is love. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know him. John's not going to hesitate to keep coming back around to this, by the way. Uh, Chapter 5 is going to open with him arguing that if you are born of God, you're going to love those who God loves. So in one way, John is being repetitive here, but what's really happening in our text this morning is that John is giving a defining characteristic of God's love. He's he's presenting this framework through which the the love of God is both known to us and shown to others. And what he presents is going to absolutely squash the silly notion that the world often has about what it means when the Bible says that God is love. Because too often we hear those three words, God is love, as if that is it by themselves and that is all there is to know about him. But it's not. While it is true that God is love, that is not the sum total of everything there is to know about God. Earlier in the same letter, John makes other statements, right? God is light. 
Or what about the writer of Hebrews? Our God is a consuming fire. All of these things are true. And so in our text this morning, the very same John who writes so simply presents God is love with this tremendous complexity. He writes in a way that demands that we sort of focus in on a specific word of the text because we have to understand this single idea if we're going to understand how God is love and how the love of God has manifested itself. Because there in in this text, it's, it's sort of nestled into this language of love is a word that is so seemingly out of place it might as well be written in in bold capital letters. There is a concept here which in our minds is just, to, to our usual way of thinking, is incompatible with all the other ideas of the passage. The passage keeps saying, you know, we, we must love. Love is from God. Every person who loves has been given life by God. Without love, you'll never know God because God is love. And God has shown his love by sending his son to give us life. And God has loved us before we loved him. And God loved us, so we ought to also love each other. But huddled there in this cluster of statements about love is the word at the end of verse 10, propitiation. And that's where John's focus is going to bring us this morning. It's, it's a word that's odd to us. It's certainly, I'm going to assume, not a word that's part of everybody's regular daily vocabulary. And to understand what this word propitiation means, it's going to require us to go to some decidedly, maybe darker places than we usually imagine when we think of this word love. To understand propitiation is going to require us to wholeheartedly embrace words like anger and appease and unrighteousness and unholiness and sacrifice and indignation and wrath. All of those are tied up into this word. It's a word that's meant to take our minds in a direction that's not your usual notion of love. And yet, here it is, it's not a mistake. As I said, the Apostle John, who is prone to write in some of the simplest biblical language, includes the word propitiation here in a way that is anything but simple. It's as if he is deliberately, you know, sort of wraps this gift in the language of love, but when you remove the bow and you peel off those layers of love in the text, what you find is that the, the gift inside the box is that Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the loving gift of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to deal with this idea of propitiation at first, topically, right? We're going to define the word. We're going to embrace this idea of what propitiation means. And then we're going to come back to the text and we're going to see how John develops love around it in a a very practical way. The word propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. Some modern translations do really well in translating this word as atoning sacrifice. The idea is this, that you have have someone who is 
offended and they are, they are right in demanding satisfaction because they have been offended. Propitiation is offering something to appease the one who is offended, to satisfy the one who is offended, in order to, to set off the offense so that the offender who had done something wrong can be reconciled to the one who is offended. In essence, the word propitiation tells us how God views the cross of Christ. Almost every other word that we use for the description of the work of Jesus comes at it from the human perspective, right? We, we talk about forgiveness. It's the death of Jesus that, that pardons our sin or redemption. It's the death of Jesus that is, purchase, purchases our freedom. Reconciliation, the, the death of Jesus has reunited us with God. In adoption, the death of Jesus has brought us into God's family. In justification, the death of Jesus gives us his own righteousness. Virtually every description we have is focused on what Jesus has done for us. But when you look at verse 10 in this text, that pivotal verse of our text, you'll find that John says that the love he's writing about cannot be defined from our perspective. This love, he says, is not that we loved God. That is the love that he's talking about cannot be understood from our vantage point. We have to see that, it, that this is how, how God sees this work. We have to look at it from his vantage point. It's not that we loved God, it's that he loved us. And sending his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins is the display of Love from God's perspective. In the word propitiation, we find God's perspective on the work of Jesus at the cross. The death of Jesus Christ has satisfied God's anger. It has appeased God's wrath. So we're going to examine this in three phases today. Why is propitiation necessary? How was propitiation accomplished? And then we're going to come back and see how John makes propitiation practical. Why it's important for us to know this. Ultimately, what we'll see in our text is that the propitiation provided by the death of Jesus Christ is the only act that could make the revelation of God's love possible for us. So let's talk about why it's necessary. Because throughout human history, mankind has been preoccupied with finding different ways to appease an angry deity. Somewhere in the DNA of our collective conscience, we know, right? We know. Humanity knows that there is a dangerous division between us and our creator, and he demands satisfaction from us. Now, the pagan idea of appeasement or satisfying their gods is frightening. 
Without the revelation of God's word, most human societies have decided that there is a God and he is angry for essentially no reason. Think of the many gods of Greek and Roman mythology. They're they're angry on a whim. Their, Their wrath can be directed at you for a mere misunderstanding. They are supposedly divine beings and yet they get arbitrarily annoyed. They might hate you for no reason or burn with indignation towards you just because they can. Can you imagine anything worse than that? Anything worse than a powerful God who's angry with you for no reason? Because let me assure you, there is something that is worse than that. As horrifying as that idea is, Worse than the hypothetical possibility of some powerful deity who's angry with you for no reason is the reality of an all-powerful God who has every reason to be angry with you. Psalm 5, verse 5 says of God, You hate all the workers of iniquity. The next verse says, The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The wicked and him that loves violence, his soul hates. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says that the wrath of God is, that is present tense, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So to actually grasp this idea of what propitiation is, you have to understand that the God who is love, who is flawlessly loving, is also a God who maintains holy hatred of all the sin and all the sinners who violate that love. The glorious God who is absolute in his perfection, he is is blinding in his purity, has been slandered by sin. Through sin, the creatures that were made in the image of God have made themselves the enemies of God. We've trampled his truth underfoot. We've insulted his gracious spirit. In our, in our sin, we slander the, the God, the creator of, of this world. We bear false witness about the world he created. We, we cover our eyes from his light. We plug our ears to his truth. Despite the goodness of God and the good world that he created, we've chosen to be in rebellion against him. And the word of God denounces all of mankind under the same indictment. Leave a bookmark here in 1 John 4, but look back with me at Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3, Paul, the apostle, gives his indictment of all mankind. And we're going to see he's actually doing this to lead up to the very idea of propitiation. But in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. 
With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you'd just allow me to sum that up in my own words, here's the essence of the Apostle Paul's indictment. We are unrighteous and ignorant and content in our unrighteous and ignorance. We've strayed from God's truth. We've deviated from God's path so that we're useless. We're good for nothing. He says we're so full of blasphemous words that our tongues are described as liars. Our lips are like snake poison. Our, our, we, we, we breathe out the stench of death and decay. And all along the road of our earthly existence, we leave ruined lives and miserable people in our wake. We have refused a peaceful path. We have no respect for God's word or God himself. You know, our sin is detestable. It is repulsive. It is contrary to any sense of righteousness. And then we dare to insist that somehow God and his holiness has to be neutral to our sin. God is not indifferent toward sin. God is not neutral toward the sinner. There is an active and passionate hatred that is holy and pure and righteous in God's heart towards the revolting sin itself and toward the rebellious sinners who revel in it. And so when we come to our our text in 1 John, we want to ask, does the Apostle John know that? Is he confused? He keeps writing about love and then he uses this word propitiation about the appeasement of God's wrath, like those things can go together. Of course he's not confused about it. The love of God and the wrath of God are not in opposition to each other. The wrath of God towards sin is the righteous revelation of his loving character. Look, even even in fallen humanity, we understand this to be true. I just want you to think in your life, in your life of the very most loving person that you know, the most loving person that you've ever met, and ask yourself, how does that person react to evil? Are they indifferent to it? When they see the suffering and agony that evil causes in others, do they pretend not to see it? Or does it grieve them to their very soul? How much more do you think that the perfect and holy God who is love must in that love be filled with wrath toward sinful acts and sinful people? You can't doubt that the Apostle John knows this. If you think back to John's gospel, he's recorded Jesus talking about this. You can go back to to John 3 and there's so much of it that you you know in your mind already as as Jesus interacted with Nicodemus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he goes on to say, he that believes in him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. 
Because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. He says in John 3.36, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense. You get that? Present tense. Without faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God at this very moment abides on you. Without Jesus providing a propitiation, an appeasement, a satisfaction for your offense against God's perfect blinding holiness, even now the fiery furnace of God's wrath is being kindled against you. And so let's just make clear this first point in two ways. Why is propitiation necessary? Well, for you, it wasn't. There is nothing in God that requires him to save you or me. He has no need of anything we have to offer. His holiness would be perfectly satisfied with your eternal punishment in the torments of hell. The very place that God created for rebels like us. There's nothing in you that could demand the atoning death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Yet for God himself, here's why it was necessary. God is love. He did not create love. He did not invent love. He is love. And for for him to be glorified in his fullness and his completeness, that love is going to be made known. It's going to be manifest. And for that love to be made known, his divine wrath against sin has to be removed. It has to be taken out of the way. That and that alone is what makes propitiation necessary. Propitiation appeases the wrath of God so that his loving nature can be revealed. Let's talk about what propitiation accomplished. What can be done to satisfy God's wrath? You realize God's anger is not going to be satisfied with a bouquet of flowers or a box of chocolates or a well-timed gift basket, right? It's going to take something more than that. Something far more precious is required. And the blood that soaked the soil at Calvary was the blood of God himself, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ the Son was born in flesh in order to absorb the wrath of God on man's sin. Now please, as we talk about this, don't misunderstand what this means. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an event where the the loving part of God attempted to appease the angry part of God. Listen, the Father and the Son, they are in perfect unity. They've always been in perfect unity. They do not work independently of each other. There's no opposition in the Godhead. In eternity past, the Father elected to save his people. The Son agreed to purchase the salvation of those people. And the Holy Spirit agreed to bring those people to life and faith. There's perfect unity in the Father, Son, and Spirit. In order to accomplish this propitiation, this satisfaction, 
It begins by God displaying his attribute of mercy in withholding the punishment or the penalty of sin. Right? We've seen lost sinners abide under the wrath of God. They live under the wrath of God. The fact that we abide at all is due to God's mercy withholding that wrath from us for a time. He has withheld, he has held back his anger, his wrath against sin and against sinners for a time. And in that time, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in the flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience that we rebellious sinners had refused to live. And when he was condemned to die, Jesus, though he had done no sin, was nailed to the cross and took the sins of God's rebellious children onto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was made to be sin for us. Jesus became the very thing that God hates in order to save the people that God loves. And at that moment, that that mercy that was withholding the wrath against our sin, the the dam that was holding that back, it it just opened, it, it broke, and the wrath of God was revealed. All that wrath that had been held that was abiding on us was was let go and it comes on Jesus. He took our sin onto himself and stood under the wrath of God. He endured the full measure of God's wrath with no mercy holding it back. How much wrath did he endure? It's unspeakable. It's beyond our understanding. But consider that God's wrath on your sin justly requires an eternal punishment in hell. And add to that the price of my sin and the price of Jack's and of Andrew's and of Larry's and of an innumerable number of people who are going to spend eternity singing, you have redeemed us by your blood out of every kindred and tribe and people and nation. The infinite wrath reserved for all of God's people, undiluted with mercy, concentrated into a few hours on the cross. His life's blood was drained from his body, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The torture that he bore physically was a mere shadow of his suffering. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says his soul was made an offering for sin. He suffered in ways we can't imagine. There's no cause in you that deserves that. This is all about God. Propitiation is how he views the cross of Christ. The appeasement of his wrath is the only way that God would accomplish what otherwise seems so contradictory. Because it seems like a contradiction that he can be just in punishing sin 
and still be the justifier, right, to declare us innocent when we know that we have sinned. But if you're still there in Romans 3, listen to what Paul goes on to say. Romans 3, we'll start, pick up at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely. That word there means without a cause. It's the same word when Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. That is, there is no cause in you that led God to declare you guiltless. You've been justified freely without a cause by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, right? God's declaration is Christ's righteousness, not mine. I don't have any. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, right? That mercy that held back his wrath. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. This work of propitiation, of appeasing the wrath of God, of of dying in the place of sinners. This is how God views it. He views it so that he can be both just in punishing sin and the justifier who looks at us guilty sinners and he declares us innocent because our sin has been removed. There's been that propitiation. The work of Jesus Christ is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. God's wrath towards his children is pacified through faith in Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 25 in Romans 3, right? It's through faith. He has brought propitiation through faith in his blood. God the Son was sent into the world to provide that propitiation, to appease the wrath of God on behalf of those who believe in him. Remember, the primary focus here, if not primary, if if possibly exclusive focus here, is Godward. Jesus did not come to save you from Satan. Satan is not your primary problem. In fact, Satan doesn't require any kind of satisfaction because he's already pretty satisfied with us. If you die without Jesus Christ, I don't know if you remember any of the Saturday morning cartoons when you were a kid, right? But if you die without Jesus Christ, you are not going to spend eternity being poked by some red scaly cartoon demon with a pitchfork. Without Jesus Christ, you are going to spend an eternity in hell. It is a place of God's creation where the wrath of God is satisfied and will be glorified in the eternal punishment of sinners. It's God who we've offended. It's God who must be satisfied. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we are saved by God's love from God's wrath for God's glory. 
That's why our sins, as as, uh, Psalm 103 says, can be removed as far as the east is from the west. They've They've been taken away. They can be remembered no more. Paul says in Romans 8, there's now, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The, the sin that has caused us to be separated from God and caused his wrath to abide on us, that sin has been removed, that wrath has been satisfied through Jesus. But before going on, let me just stop and ask pointedly right now. Are you in Christ Jesus the way that Paul says? Has your sin been removed or do you still carry the rebellion which God hates? Are you in Christ Jesus and not condemned or are you without him? And in his own words, you're condemned already. Are you a believer who will abide in everlasting life or an unbeliever who has the wrath of God presently right now abiding on you? If you're traveling through life without Jesus Christ, I encourage you, make a U-turn. Confess your sin. Run to the cross. Receive the forgiveness of God through faith in the blood and the righteousness of his son Jesus. Just tell him you know how sinful you are. Tell him you know that you're under his righteous wrath. If you've never called in the name of the Lord, hear his voice and obey the call of the gospel. There is propitiation. There is a sacrifice for those, only those who are linked to Jesus Christ in faith. You need him more than you know. So how is the propitiation accomplished? It is realized through the exhaustion and satisfaction of God's wrath by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. It's for all those who look to him in faith. Now, how does John make propitiation practical, right? What's it it mean for us today? Because the words that we've been using to understand this have been words like anger and and appease and placate and, and, and sinfulness and unrighteousness and holiness, vengeance, indignation, wrath. But look back at our text in 1 John 4. When you look at verses 7 through 12, the Apostle John is clear that in his mind there is one blessed truth that surrounds this idea of propitiation. And that blessed truth is love. Just listen to the text again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us or in that way loved us, we also ought to love one another. There are two sort of quick practical applications I want to take from the text. First, 
John argues that propitiation flows out from God's love. It's not in contradiction to it. It's common to think that God's love was purchased for us by the work of Jesus Christ, but that is simply not true. God did not love us because Christ died. Christ died because God loved us. Listen to verses 9 and 10 again. And this was manifested the love of God towards us. This This is how God's love is known. Because he sent his only begotten son into the world. So the giving of Jesus Christ was so the love of God would be made known. That we might live through him. Here in his love, he says in verse 10, right? This is love. If you want to know what love looks like, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is the pre-existing love of God that led him to send Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the pre-existing love of Jesus that made him willing to come and be the propitiation for our sins. How well that fits with what John's saying here. Propitiation didn't happen because God was loved. It only happened because God is love. If it's God's wrath that needed to be satisfied, it is God's love which did the satisfying. You know what that means for you today in a practical sense? Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can know that God is for you. Every drop of that raging river of God's divine wrath has been absorbed by the work of Jesus Christ the Son. So many times we look at the circumstances of our life and we think, you know, this horrible thing has happened because God is angry with me. He's mad at me about some sin in my life. Listen, if, if, if you believe in Jesus, I can tell you, no, he's not. He's not. Now, surely there are things that God could bring to pass in our life in order to lovingly correct us, and correction is not always fun. It's not always easy, but it's for our good. But what propitiation would teach us is there is not one drop of anger or wrath that is coming towards you from God because God loves you. His anger is appeased. His wrath has been satisfied. All the rest is love. Propitiation flows out from God's love. But I also want you to see that John's telling us that propitiation flows into God's love, into displays of God's love. Look what he says in the text. The beginning of verse 7, those beloved of God should love one another. The end of verse 7, those who know God show God's love. In verse 8, we can conclude that those without love are those who are without God. In verse 9, God has revealed his love so that we might live in love through him. In verse 11, because God loved us, we should love one another. Listen, the Apostle John did not include the, the concept of propitiation in verses 9 and 10 so that you could learn a new vocabulary word and pass a spiritual final exam. 
It is here specifically as an example, as a defining characteristic of the love of God, so that you and I will follow that example. Propitiation flows out of God's love, and it flows into displays of God's love. And here's what that means in a very practical sense. It's very easy to to look at people around us and conclude that they are They are undeserving of our love. It's simple to sit back and just say, well, I'm going to wait to be loved first. That's not what we see from our heavenly father. His motive should be our motive. His example should be our example, John said. You should love others, not because they deserve it. They don't deserve it. But you should love others because you know God and you are born of God and you are loved of God. You don't have to wait to be loved first. God did not wait to be loved first. The example of godly love shows that it existed before it was returned to him. This This doctrine, all this theology, trying to understand this word propitiation, it might seem complex, but the very practical lesson it teaches is pretty simple. The simple lesson of propitiation in in this text is that God satisfied his own wrath in order to display his love to those who least deserved it. I imagine you got plenty of people in your life who fit that description. Can you love them even though they've done wrong to you? Even though you are right in analyzing and seeing that they've done wrong to you? Because you know they aren't going to make it right, are they? And that's the world we live in. Are you willing to make a sacrifice of yourself so that you would set aside your own wrath in order to display the love of God towards those people in your life that do not deserve it. You can either hear that as an unreasonable request or you can be honest and say, well, that's just not asking much in comparison to what God did for me through propitiation. Or look at how John says it, the, the, the last verse before he transitions into sort of a new topic, verse 12. He says, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. No man has seen God at any time. Have you been reading through 1 John and you go, John, what are you talking about? Nobody's been arguing about whether or not somebody's seen God. Like, why, why, why are you throwing that statement in there? It seems out of place. And it's certainly very similar to what he says back in his gospel in John 1, verse 18. He says, no man has seen God at any time. It's the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father who declares him. It's only Jesus who himself is God, who makes God known. But yet this statement here and the one he made back in John chapter 1 are not exactly the same. He uses a different word here for has seen. Back there in 
In his gospel, it was the word eorakin, which just means to see, just a very simple, what you would think when you go, has seen, right? But here in this letter, he uses a different word. The word here is actually the same Greek word that we get our English word theater from. It means to see closely or to watch with scrutiny, to to carefully observe. In other words, what John is saying is that God's love has been made known through Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, but that's not something that the world has ever set their eyes on. No man has seen God at any time. But what can the world see? Keep reading. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. The love of God that led him to sin, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, reconciling us to him. So that we who have been reconciled now display the love of God through loving one another, just as God loved, right? Propitiation is the framework through which the love of God is known and shown. So that we who have been loved by God in this way, we step onto the world stage and we are displaying God's love through our love. Our one love for one another shows God's indwelling presence so that God who revealed his love in and through Jesus Christ the Son, now reveals his love in and through his people who live for Jesus Christ his Son. Because God sent his Son Jesus to set aside the wrath reserved for you and all that wrath that you think that you are right in reserving for others in your life, calls us to set it aside in order to love the way that he loves. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you today for your word and we thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to be a display of your love. Lord, we, we confess that we have sins. We confess that we are sinners. We know that you would be perfect in your love and in your holiness by just condemning us to everlasting punishment in hell. But Father, we praise you that you, in your mercy and love, you sent Jesus to reconcile us to you through his blood. We cannot express gratitude enough. But Father, help us to follow your word that we would understand the setting aside of your wrath in a display of love and that our calling is to set aside our own anger to display your love. Lord, we need your help in this. Give us the guidance of your spirit. Help us to do it for your glory. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.